Blog Talk Radio. This week on Backroom Politics, political protest and unrest in Hong Kong. Are we facing another Tiananmen Square? In Washington, Supreme Court allows Ohio to limit early voting. Is the Supreme Court failing Americans or is it just doing its constitutional duty? Is the Republican stronghold on America's governor's mansions coming to an end? Over 12 governors in trouble of losing their positions nationwide. Intruder at the White House. Updated sources say that he made it in as far as the entrance of the green room. Is this a major safety concern or just a one-time flaw? That and tell me a story this week on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good afternoon out there in Radio Land. Hey, it's Tuesday. That means it's time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. Good morning. Good afternoon, Russell. Good afternoon. Yeah, morning, possibly still in your time zone out in Washington. It'll be nighttime by that time. That's fine. Uh, to my 11 o'clock across the table, he is the former floor chief for then-Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hello, Justin. Glad to be here. And directly across the table covering my 12 o'clock, he is the former... Under Secretary of Commerce, who served under last count four presidents, he is the longtime Senate staffer and insider and a very distinguished and handsome fellow at the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And to my right, ironically, he is a longtime political operative here in Washington, D.C., a member of the D.C. Bar. He is Daniel Lipner, Esquire. Glad to be here, Justin. Really? Are you are you really glad to be here, Dan? I couldn't be happier to be anyplace else. And joining us for the first time today, she is uh, the regional press secretary for Generation Opportunity, a youth advocacy organization. Former RNC staffer, she is Rebecca Kaufman. Hi, Rebecca. Okay, happy to be here, Justin. Oh, thank you. You got to lean in. That's the microphone. You got to talk up, modulate. You know, first time. Go. Justin, I'm very happy to be here. Oh, there we go. All right, now we're talking. Now we're going fire. Hey, we've got a lot to get to. We've got big stories coming in from all over the place, including you see when you're when you're late, you got it. You, you, Carl Tubin. <laughs> Carl Tubin now joining us. Carl, you got to be here for man. You're killing me. Live TV, live radio show, live radio show, Carl. Uh, and he's the. Uh, 
uh, former lobbyist for 20th Century Fox and longtime Washington operative Carl Tuvin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Beth Justin. Okay, yeah, let's get back to the radio show. refer to him as the late Carl Tuvin. Wow. He just sat down, man. Give him some breaks. Hey, uh, for those of you who have not been watching, uh, there are pro democracy demonstrations going on in Hong Kong, which have expanded over the course of the past few days. Uh, it is um, it is in defiance of new government warnings, uh, basically saying that uh, the student-led unrest sparked by China's insistence that uh, veteran candidates for a 2017 election in Hong Kong, even though they're residents of Hong Kong, have been promised that they would be able to freely elect their leaders. The reality is China is now going back on that, saying that the, the residents of Hong Kong, particularly the students, don't have the ability that they will be appointed by Beijing or they will be done by special election at the behest of Beijing. Uh, let's start with Alan Moore. Alan Moore, I mean, this has really sparked some serious demonstrations, particularly from youthful voters in Hong Kong. Why is this such a big deal, and why is the world paying so much close attention to it? Well, the world cares because Hong Kong matters. Hong Kong is a huge financial and business center um, that all of uh, the, the huge, huge amounts of Asian commerce pass through. It is also a, a test of Beijing's willingness to abide by what was called a one nation, two systems approach, which was part of the effort to persuade uh, the British, who used to have Hong Kong as a colony, and the Hong Kong leaders that this this marriage, if you will, with China, with mainland China, would work. It was always an experiment. I happened to be in Hong Kong 25 years ago, 1989, during the Tiananmen uh, demonstrations in Beijing, and it was the first time in anyone's memory that there were huge demonstrations in Hong Kong. There were over 100,000 people out on the streets. Looking at the pictures, I haven't seen any good numbers. There are, at minimum, tens of thousands of people. The fear is that if China reneges on this level of self-determination, that one, potential leaders uh, in, in the country, including all of these young people, will, will vote with their feet if they can. Um, and, but more to the point, they're worried about businesses saying, wait a second, we bought into this deal and it looks like Beijing is reneging. What Beijing has said is, you can elect your, your leader in 2017, but only from a list of candidates that we have approved. So that's the point that triggered all, all of these demonstrations. Beijing is caught between a rock and a hard place because they have to decide, wow, do we push hard and hold hold firm, possibly running business away and keeping the, the demonstrations going? Or do we back off and look weak and cause other people in other parts of China to say, we want some of that autonomy too? It, it is a very, very big stakes uh, game here. Bob Hines, we were talking earlier before the show, and as we were talking, it there's a, a very thin line here that Beijing's running with. It is their ability to self-govern. Hong Kong is now part of Chinese-controlled territory. But 
your thought is that they're violating international agreements that they did with the British 17 years ago when the Brits actually pulled out of Hong Kong, and that this is a sign to the global community, hey, the Chinese can't be trusted in these international agreements. Well, I think that's reasonable. Alan laid it out very clearly. The understanding was very clear at the beginning that it was two systems, and Hong Kong was going to be able to elect their own leadership, and it turns out that they can't because they're going to get they have a list the Chinese give them and they can vote they can pick them back through and it's not it's not going very well. I, Congressman Al, I have a question <clears throat> without an answer. What is going on in Hong Kong that is a threat to mainland China? I mean, why are they doing this? It seems to me that it's been working well and uh, they're just stirring up the fire. Bob Hines, why don't you take a swipe at that? Yeah, I think that's true, Alan. I think what they're doing here is they're just showing that they can do it because they're they're China. They're Beijing. Uh, and uh, I think they're gonna they're gonna suffer. I think Alan had a very Alan had a very right. A lot of businesses will be concerned. I mean major countries from all over Asia have headquarters and major operations in Hong Kong. It's it's this financial center basically of Asia. But it seems, oh, to me, it seems to me that China itself has done so many things that Mao Zedong wouldn't recognize the, the government if he were to come back today. Uh, and yet they're going to draw the line here. It seems insane. But Alan Moore, is, is this is this in fact a matter a matter of um, China be Beijing being Beijing, or is there more at stake that we're not seeing that the Central Committee is worried about? Well, it's a very small circle at the top. Uh, let's remember that um, at the top of the government in Beijing. Their fear is that if you give extensive autonomy to Hong Kong, you in effect lose operational control over that ent entity. They want to control Hong Kong. They want to, to exert political pressure and they want to reap the financial benefits without an understanding or historical recognition of the fact that it's not a free lunch. If you want Hong Kong to function the way it always has, you're going to have to give it some political autonomy. That's contrary to the way China functions. So they are pushing back on a couple thousand years of culture and evolution in what Hong Kong wants. And Hong Kong not just these young kids who are in the streets because they've been exposed through university study, high school study, because there's high school kids, and social media in uh, a, a lifetime, if you will, of, of a fair amount of flexibility and, and local political uh, autonomy, and they want to expand it, not see it contracted. Carl Tobin. Well, the committee that, that picks up these uh, candidates are is very small and it is it is communist uh, drums um, led by the led by the mainland. Number one, number two, the, the people that are protesting want to expand that committee so they can get other people on the on the list. Um, uh, and that's, that's a big point. The other the other point is if this continues, what does China do? Now, before, before this, China would go in with tanks, with guns, with people, and, and break up these crowds. But 
because of what Alan said. That, that well, they, they've that, already that, they've that, already that, used that, force. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me. Let's be clear. The Chinese government has already used force. As of last night, they were using tear gas uh, to suppress what many inside. Uh, the uh, demonstrations are now calling the Umbrella Revolution. Right. They've already deployed tactical forces to respond to this. Uh, Rebecca Kaufman, I mean, this has got a lot of young people globally a little concerned. What's the concern for the young people outside of Hong Kong for this? Yeah, I think anytime we see a protest like this, it's important to remember that this might be breaking news in the United States. But in China and Hong Kong, this isn't news. These tensions have been rising for a while now. Um, the part, the two-party system isn't working out quite like they thought it would. And um, China, this isn't shouldn't be surprising for anyone who's been following the dynamic over there. So anytime a protest like this happens, um, it's good that we're drawing attention to it. But it's also important to understand that this has been a long time coming. Bob Hines? China's got a real problem here because, as we all can see, if they let Hong Kong have what the agreement, the, the original agreement with, with the British and British left, if they do that, they're going to have troubles in their own country. They already have problems in their western, their more rural part of the country, where Uyghur and some other nation uh, nationalities are very strong, and they have troubles out there already. If they let Hong Kong free to elect their own officials, they're going to have interior, interior problems in their own country. That's one thing. Secondly, if they knock Hong Kong down and, and require them to operate strictly under Chinese control, it's clearly going to reduce Hong Kong to a, a, a basically nothing, you know, much less than it is today and probably damage a whole lot of interest of the Chinese have other places because so many different countries and, and companies have interest in Hong Kong, and they're all going to be damaged. So it's a real stink for them. Dan Lipner? Well, that's part of the question. Is this, is this move a strictly domestic move, or is this also a, is this a warning shot, uh, a geopolitical warning shot across the bow for the rest of the international community? That China's showing that it can flex its arms in Hong Kong, which is technically still domestic for it, but it has some pretty international reach. and how the international community also responds to this is a question. And there seems to be no appetite anywhere for the rest of the, for the, rest of the world to get involved. No, but, I mean, but that, this it's is probably true that China will go ahead and do what they're doing. Hong Kong will recede and there will be problems continuously. I mean, this is the largest protest we've seen since the British have handed over Hong Kong to the Chinese. And, Alan Moore, this is a far cry from 2006 when you had a collection of farmers walking through the streets uh, arguing about tariffs and market access. Yeah, too, that was a, just a totally different thing. And I, uh, although tensions have been rising, I think this really moved into new territory, which is why you suddenly you, you went from very small complaints, social media complaints, to mass demonstrations, tens of thousands of people in the street uh, saying not just no, but, but uh, quietly, passively, hell no. The, the Hong Kong police did not know what to do. And that's where we saw pepper spray and tear gas in a big way, lots of, uh, of disturbing 
uh, images, which then the Chinese tried to block um, uh, via, via the internet. This is a new territory. This is not, I think, something that, that uh, what's ha what, what I think has surprised the Chinese is as the crackdown and efforts to move the crowds uh, rose, more people came out to demonstrate. So rather than having a chilling effect and causing people to go back inside, this brought still more people out. Let, let me also say that someone who's watching all of this with great interest are the Taiwanese, because the, the whole one of the ideas behind one nation, two systems was the hope by some, both in uh, China and in Taiwan, that maybe there could be an evolution of one nation, three systems, where Taiwan would be able to continue to function uh, with, a, with a high level of independence, but be able to have more economic connections Is and it, cultural let connections. Me jump, let me jump on that, though. It's a huge setback. Let, let me jump on that, though. That enterprise. When, when we talk about Taiwan, I mean, there's no question Taiwan has got vested economic mm -hmm. and trade impacts that are, are, are still present with unrest in Hong Kong. But was, with, with the tension between Beijing and Taiwan, was that a reality or was that just a pipe dream by the Taiwanese that says, look, we're going to create this huge free trade zone called Hong Kong and everybody will live happily ever after. It seems to me that Beijing, with the tensions with Taiwan, would never allow that. No, no, no. Taiwan didn't control Hong Kong. Hong Kong is, is really an international, uh, international financial market. Right. It really was a British colony. Taiwan really was a breakaway from the communist Chinese colony. Right. And, and, and it's just that the Taiwanese, under the umbrella of U.S. protection and a lot of initiative and a lot of smart people who joined the anti-communist crusade, if you will, moved to Taiwan and started working their rear ends off and, and have been a, an economic miracle in their own right. But it's making but some of the best QP dolls in America. They don't. Not anymore, man. They, they, they make way more, much more interesting excuse me, stuff than that. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, a, it's an economic miracle not, not far behind South Korea. Um, but, but they would like to get rid of the tension with the mainland if there were a way to do that. And China doesn't make that easy. But I think that everybody, therefore, is looking really hard at the, the, what I'll call the Hong Kong experiment. And that thing is moving off the tracks right now, and that is a potential setback to the economy of Hong Kong and to those who would like to see Taiwan have closer ties to China. But Dan Lipner, when, when we when we look at this and we look at the financial center that is Hong Kong on an international scale, is the peaceful demonstration that we're seeing in Hong Kong just for literally voting rights and the ability to govern themselves? Is is that enough to cause unrest in global financial markets to let them say, hey, we've got a problem over there. We're going to have to hunker down and look at other options? At the moment, no, based on what we've seen on the ground. The, Could that change quickly? Well, that's the question, how the Chinese respond. The tear gas and pepper spray, this is kind of how governments everywhere respond to protests. However, if this turns into actual political repression with the military, yeah, global market's going to take notice pretty quick. You know, Rebecca, when, when, when we talk about the peaceful demonstration that is this umbrella revolution, we've heard people 
call it everything to the Hong Kong Velvet Revolution to as extreme as this is another Tiananmen Square. In the in the modern day world of internet and social media, do you think that the youthful protests that are happening right now in Hong Kong, are they going to be able to affect change even though there are tight restrictions on social media, internet access at a global level by the Chinese? Absolutely. I think that this is a trend we're seeing internationally. I think that even if China is able to rescind these protests, this is something that they're going to see time and time again. Internationally, my generation understands what democracy looks like. We understand what voting rights we deserve. And they're not going to settle for anything less in, in Hong Kong. They know what the Chinese government is doing by vetting their elected officials, and they don't like it. Um, citizen journalism is on the rise, not just in America. It's happening everywhere. I mean, you see this in the Middle East as well. This isn't going away for the Chinese government. Bob Hines? You know, it strikes me that China is making a huge mistake here. Uh, there is no way that Hong Kong is going to try to become an independent country. There is no way that the Hong Kong government, elected by the Hong Kongese, would do anything that was so irrational or stupid that to cause China to have to, you know, come in and take them over militarily, which they can't do easily. It just seems to me that China is just so scared of their internal problems in their western third of the country that, that, that where there are a lot of uh, people who are very unhappy with, with, with their limited rights. And I think they, they're trying to send a message to keep people quiet in, in their, internally in China. And all they're going to do here is cause themselves more trouble and more trouble internationally. But going off of what Bob was saying, Alan Moore, Bob brings up a good point. When we look at the Chinese economy, which is now suffering through inflation, uh, they're suffering through devaluation of their currency. There are a lot of economic problems. There's an economic bubble in mainland China right now. Why would the Chinese mess with a huge economic powerhouse like Hong Kong at the risk of their own financial bubble being affected, or is it a red herring? Hong Kong, it's not a red herring. Hong Kong is part of China, and it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a stress-filled marriage. Hong Kong has enormous wealth, um, universities, um, and it's mostly Chinese people, who move pretty easily back and forth from Hong Kong, where they may live and work, to other parts of China, where they may have familial roots, or to the places in China that are the industrial centers, um, because Hong Kong ends up being a bridge between the West, if you will, and a lot of these companies that produce um, Telecom equipment, electronics, whatever stuff, and consumer goods, and so on. The 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 sophisticated middle people tend to live. Many of them live in Hong Kong or have close connections in Hong Kong. So these people are moving back and forth. That's pretty threatening when you have folks with an enormous amount of freedom and a fair amount of wealth. Um, and we're not talking about an elite several, but we're talking about upper level managers moving back and forth, in and out of China, uh, sharing their ideas, their points of view. And, and, and I get, I'm guessing that China doesn't know quite what to do about all of that. And it's thought, well, we can't let them have the kind of autonomy that they seem to be assuming for themselves 
These big elections in 2017 are the time to head that off. Yeah. And it was, I mean, I can understand their motivation, but it seems to be a horrendous miscalculation. And now they've they've got they've 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 got this snowball growing as it as it goes downhill, and they're having more and more trouble trying to contain uh, this uh, this whole topic. Dan Lipner, going off what Alan's saying, is is China concerned that they this might overflow into industrial centers, Shenzhen? God forbid, even the government center in Beijing? I doubt it. Um, yeah, there has been issues with social media and that, as Rebecca pointed out, that people are getting far more engaged. However, there's really been no sign of the, the central party infrastructure in China being affected by any of it, which is why I'm curious whether or not that this is another international move of China flexing its muscle, maybe to actually adjust the international financial markets more to its liking. Uh, China's been doing this, it's doing various international moves all across the region, including seemingly at least to westernize, inexplicably messing with Japan and some islands that have no real worth to anyone other than who has property rights to it. So it, it, there is a question as far as what's actually going on there. Bob Hines, in the back, in the back of the Central Committee's mind in Beijing, is there concern that if they do use too much force, that international sanctions could further hamper economic development in mainland China to a point where they say, look, we're just hands off, you guys got it. Free elections in 2017. I greatly doubt whether the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party is concerned about anybody outside. Right now, I think they're looking at inside. They're playing inside. I think their internal concerns are serious. You're saying this is inside baseball. Yeah, I mean, the, pre the current chairman or whatever the president of China, the, the premier, I can't pronounce his name, is, is probably the most powerful leader since uh, you know, then back in what, like 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. you know, he's really he's really taken, taken out a lot of the old guard, put his own people in place, and he's a very powerful leader. He can do anything he damn well pleases right now. Alan Moore, you agree? Well, he can do what he pleases, but that doesn't mean he can get the result from that action that he wants. He wants Hong Kong to be an economic powerhouse, as it, as it continues to be, but under, under the leadership of China. That is not within his control, and that's what's now at risk. And, and if he insists on the iron hand over Hong Kong, the international business community is going to get very nervous and start moving operations. The world does not need Hong Kong. China needs Hong Kong more than the world needs Hong Kong over the long term. The, the world can go to London. The world can go to New York. The world can go to Singapore. There's, there's, there's other options. That doesn't mean it would be an easy, smooth transition because Hong Kong plays such an important role as a middleman to, to industrial China. No. But... Rebecca Kaufman. So you say that the China needs Hong Kong. Doesn't the United States also need China? I mean, this implicates how, how our reaction to this has enormous implications for our own economy. Can you talk a little bit about that? You know, we we have stores in America full of Chinese-made goods. That's going to happen with or without Hong Kong because we need their cheap stuff. And the question is whether the middlemen who are doing the helping make the business deals are going to be located in Hong Kong 
in China or in some other place. China needs the U.S. market and the U.S. needs Chinese products. We also need some stability in Asia. And as Dan pointed out, the Chinese, you know, they're not very, it's not a very transparent operation. So they do stuff we cannot for the life of, of ourselves sort of figure out. Um, like messing with the Japanese over some mostly useless islands over it's, it's an emotional thing. Hong Kong is not useless, particularly to China. Carl Tubin? You know, I didn't, I didn't see the news last night and didn't see all the, the uh, dancing or whatever that they were doing, but they are, they are, if they're going to do this and use military, they're really going to be on a slippery slope. And that could could come over into the mainland. The people who are, are, are protesting in parts of China are going to say, "Well, if they can do it, we can do it." And and it could it could be it, it could be a very bad move for the new leader. Alan Moore. Well, I'm just going to say, expanding on what Carl's saying, that the police that are now using had had been using the tear gas and, uh, and pepper spray have backed off. Those are Hong Kong police. Those are mostly going to be people with a history of Hong Kong. There's also a Chinese army force in Hong Kong for, if you will, emergency purposes. They are not people who have a history in Hong Kong. They have not been called in. And one of, one thing the world is watching is if, if... Will they be called in? Would they be called in? And how would they behave? They would unlikely show the same kind of restraint, not the tear gas and pepper spray is wonderful restraint, but then when it's backfiring you back off, if 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 they're if if China is not pleased with the sort of civil control that that the police force is able to get, there's a chance they could order in the army. Let me let me just jump on that. Is this another Tiananmen Square? I don't know. I don't, we don't, we Does don't, it have the potential no to be? Definitely has the potential. Very good. But that would depend if if they send in the army or if the the police started doing something even more uh, harmful to individuals. Very good. Okay, with that, we'll make that the last word. When we come back, we're going to talk about the problems over at the Secret Service. Secret Service director was called in front of the House committees today, and it did not necessarily go well for the Secret Service. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelly's Back Room, Shelly's Back Room has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings. Famous campfire wings. One pound of roasted, not fried, seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the campfire wings best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, You have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me, breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, 
thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics. Yeah, I just wanted to 
say that we, we don't, if looking at the diagram of the White House, and I think all of us around the table have been in the White House, literally if he had gone a few steps further south, he could have gone straight upstairs into the into Well, no, the he actually residence. went past. If you he, look, he, he chose not to go upstairs. No, no, no. If you look at if you look at the White House, I mean, once you enter the, you know, not to give away too much, but once you enter in the front door, to your left is entry into the East Room. Just behind that Correct. is the stairway to what we know as the residence level. No, no, actually, it's in front of no, Or in front, I'm sorry, in front of it. It's the first thing you get to. The first thing you pass is is stairs that go downstairs to the basement. Mm-hmm. The next thing is the stairs that go upstairs to the family quarters, and that's the that's the stairway that you often see at state dinners, dinners right. when when a, people will come right. down the stairs and right. they'll take right. a picture. When you go just in the, this is all in a foyer, a nice marble foyer. You go just beyond that, and you have the hallway. Left is the east room, right state dining room, um, and then just the forward the green room is around. Room past the staircase, down the hall, through the east room. And into the green towards room. Towards the green room, and apparently was right near the door to the green room. Right. There's a red room. There's several rooms that... that, that without uh, getting too far yeah. into the weeds, without getting too far into the weeds... Uh, like out of the weeds. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm trying to keep it from going too deep into the weeds without giving the White House tour. You can request that through your member of Congress. Uh, the reality is, this is sparked a huge question. Is the president safe in his own residence, and did the Secret Service fall down? Uh, these are questions that were asked by House Oversight Committee under Daryl Issa when they called up uh, the director of Secret Service to testify about the, uh, the intrusion and the current state of the Secret Service. Congressman Al. Not only the current state of the Secret Service. <clears throat> the, this, this guy got into the White House. And I remember once it was during the Reagan Jimmy Carter uh, election, and Mrs. Carter came out to my district, and she was circulating to a, a senior citizen center. <clears throat> this is supposed to win elections, I gather. In any event, I was as the congressman right behind her. Now, in front of her was a Secret Service man behind her, and in front of me was a Secret Service man, and there was a Secret Service man behind me. We're going through the the line, shaking hands and greeting people, and suddenly I feel an elbow from the Secret Service man in front of me back into my ribs. So I said, well, he doesn't want me to close the present. So I let the line move and left a few feet there. And then the guy behind me puts his hand on my back and shoves me up to the throat. Whereupon I got another elbow in the ribs. And and I stopped and I said, Look, guys, I'll do anything you want. Just ask me, you know, and, and which gave me a, another shot in the ribs. Right. Now I, I, I talked here at Shelley's with the with the guy that's very high up in the Secret Service and I told him about this. He says, Well, those were the, the bad old days. He said We've changed, we've uh, smoothed it out, and what have you. Well, I'll tell you, if you're, <laughs> it, it, it seems to me if they're spending their time beating up on congressmen, they don't have time. All to right, be- outside of that, Al, let's let's move on real quick. Hold, hold Why on. Why move on? Just, don't move on. Al, I don't want to move on. I want to know why there was a a, 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 a kind of 
culture in the Secret Service that allows them to beat up on congressmen and not catch intruders in the White House. Well, okay. Well, anyway, Alan Moore. Well, what Al was Al doing, Al what Al was doing back then was practicing up for this show. <laughs> elbowed from in front, pushed from behind. I just around. got elbowed by. You know, when you think about when you ceremonies think, when, here, doesn't want to talk about. This. When you think <laughs> about the Secret Service, we 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 know they protect the president. We tend to think that inside the White House, it's a compound, and it's it's got fences, it's got dogs, it's got sharpshooters, snipers, it's got all sorts of things. Missile launchers. Lots and lots and lots of people, and we tend to think, oh, that's pretty safe because we can get so close. The harder job, if you think about it, is when presidents or their families, but particularly presidents, are outside of the White House and need protection on the road when people can run up and it's disruptive and they are very tough and protective. And when people say that's the old days, I'm guessing today it's, it's, it's also tough. What's so surprising is the place that should have trustworthy, regular, predictable protection failed and failed and failed. And there's got to be a head or two that rolls over this. This is humiliatingly embarrassing, and and the and the the breaches that occurred to let this guy get inside the White House were compounded by the reporting done by Secret Service spokespeople after the fact. First of all, claiming we showed restraint and didn't shoot the guy because we didn't didn't look like he was armed. How do you all know? Right, but let me. And then, I, and then I agree with you. I agree with you on almost every level, with one exception. The, the, the problem is that, yes, they showed restraint. Now then, let's also be clear. The second that the family leaves the property, not defending the Secret Service that this wasn't a failure, but knowing that the fact that the Secret Service knew that the family was in the air, off property, they were not in residence, one, gives them a little bit, a little bit of leeway as far as the showing restraint. The, the question is, is you've got a 42-year-old Iraqi veteran that is obviously suffering from and has now since been diagnosed with severe PTSD after serving in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. And the reality is, if they do take him out, and there are use of force continues, I won't get into, but if they take him out, the media would have been all over, oh, look, Here's an Iraqi war veteran lying dead on the front lawn of the White House. I mean, I mean, look. The reality is, it, it, they're damned if they do, they're damned if they don't. No, 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 so a couple of things as far as showing restraint. Showing restraint, like not letting the dog out, that apparently he's not being trained to truly attack people. He just knocks them down until the agents can get there and actually subdue them, the, which is part of the PR failure. Beyond that, lying to the press as far as what happened internally. And in addition to that, more shoes are dropping as far as other issues that have occurred, including the shooting at the White House that they didn't know till four days later. Well, so, we'll, we'll, get it, we'll get into that, too. But, but that's actually part of the issue. And the, the shocking issue around this, and in all due respect to the congressman, that 
when the president or elected officials are outside of the White House, there is this perpetual tension as far as the access of the public to their political leadership. And that is one I respect. And when those breakdowns occur, that that is an ongoing tension. And those breakdowns aren't quite as surprising. This being the White House and the fact that we have this guy on multiple videos, including apparently the, the, the agents that were supposed to be watching these videos missed this guy and did not signal yeah. that there was an issue. Yeah. Right, but Bob Hines, I mean, the Secret Service is also caught between a rock and a hard place. If you start pushing fences back, which some people have called for, you start taking away public access to, quote-unquote, the people's house. It, it's, it's, it's a catch-22 situation the Secret Services. They talk about building a higher fence. They talk about possibly even electrifying the fence. I mean, there's been all kinds of crazy ideas here. But at what point is this become access? And again, you can walk down that walkway. They've already shut down Pennsylvania Avenue, which is now just a pedestrian walkway between the White House and Lafayette Square. Uh, you've got a fence line, and you've got Secret Service uniform protective detail right there watching it. Is this a matter of we've got to push it back and keep people from the people's house? No. It, it, what it what it says is people who are supposed to be watching what's going on are doing their job. This guy crossed, climbed over the fence, crossed 70 yards of open ground, no trees, no hiding bushes behind, open ground lawn, walking up to the White House door, goes in the door and starts walking around. Nobody stops him. That is not... That's not we don't we need we need more weapons or guards or what it just means people got to be awake on doing their job. Rebecca Kaufman. Yeah, I think that well, first of all, it's really important that we maintain um, respect for our Secret Service agents. They work very hard every day to protect us. Um, this is a this is obviously an issue of failed leadership. I mean, we're talking about the layout of the White House or moving the fence back or forth. That doesn't matter. The people who are supposed to be doing their jobs clearly weren't. I mean, it's important to keep in mind that the guy, the Secret Service agent who caught this guy, wasn't even on duty. This, this who knows if he had, if that guy hadn't walked by, how long this could have gone on for? This is a glaring problem. Today on the House floor, Daryl Issa said, uh, "How hard is it to lock the White House front door?" You know, it's kind of funny, but it's actually not. It's actually horrifying. This is a huge problem, and it's a, it's a glaring oversight. But, but Bob Hines, I mean, going off of what Rebecca was saying, you know, Julia Pearson, the new director, she's only been in the job now maybe six to eight months. Julia Pearson came in, sat in front of Daryl Issa's committee today, took everything. Is this a situation where she should resign, that this is a failure on her part, or is there a... Uh, are there other heads that could roll as a result of it, i.e., some are calling for the Uniformed Secret Service Chief, the, the Chief of the Uniformed Division of Secret Service, that this was on his watch, his failure, he should be the one to go. Well, I don't know if anybody should be the one to go, but it, I don't think the new director is the, is the one to go, the woman. I think the people who are in charge in the White House, are the ones you got to worry about. The people who were on duty and weren't where they were supposed to be and weren't doing what they were supposed to be, those are the people we ought to be talking about. You know, the people who screwed up. The, the, the one thing, the one thing we got to be for those who don't know about how the White House is protected. A majority of the White House protective detail uh, are uniform are uniform officers of the Secret Service Uniform Division. 
those in Washington have seen Secret Service marked police vehicles pulling people over for traffic stops for stuff like having your cell phone up or making an illegal U-turn. I can tell you right now that from personal experience, my thought is if I'm being pulled over by a uniformed Secret Service officer because I've got a cell phone in my ear, that's not their job. They should be on post worrying about guys like Gonzalez climbing over the fence, and they should be protecting from the joint MPD. Or per perhaps they should be finding members of Congress who they can elbow in the rib. That's, 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 that's that. protective detail. Yeah, arrest those guys. Yeah, that's a fault on a congressman now. I am not in a position here to say whether or not Secret Service guys in their cars are pulling people over their cell phones. I would venture to guess that if that happens, it's very rare. That's not their job. That's not, by and large, what they're up to and what they're doing. And Secret Service does have some additional duties from time to time when they're visiting uh, senior heads of state. Right. But it, and they and they do. And they also have other missions. They, they have they financial do, crimes. They do detail. They do. They have to drive presidents, spouses, children around to different places. I mean, so they plus, do have some other duties that they run into. By and large, though, in this case, in the White House, they did not do their job. Somebody's head needs to roll, sad to say, because nobody's all bad, nobody's all good. But this is so embarrassing. And coming on the heels, as Dan said, of then these new revelations of this shooting at the building three years ago and how that was handled and the facts uncovered and kept from the family for a few days. Um, I mean, you, it, it, it's, that's circumstantial. That's unfortunate. I'm not saying it's the, the, the leader who should go. Somebody needs but to Dan, retire. Dan Lipner, I mean, how do we respond to, to the folks to say, okay, look, unfortunately, we live in an open society. Unfortunately, you know, we, we've also seen the pictures, uh, you know, a few decades ago with a Cessna 152 crash landing on the front lawn in, into the White House at one point. Yeah, well, uh, we, we saw that. Uh, we've seen other people jump the fence line before. You know, is this a matter of, hey, this is just some of the issues, you know, the president himself would not be in danger, even though he might have gone into the White House? I mean, at what point do we start on stop armchair quarterbacking and saying, look, unfortunately, we live in a free society with close access to the White House? Well, that's actually one of the most heartening things come from this. The Secret Service immediately came out and said, well, we thought about putting guard posts further out from the White House to, to even check out pedestrian traffic. And there's been pushback, nonpartisan, both sides of the aisle saying, no, this is, this is a human failure. This is, not, this is not more technology. This is not more gates. This is not more fences. This is a matter of the people on guard that screwed up. And this is an utterly fixable solution. And in response to how we generally respond to these kind of failures, this is kind of heartening that we're realizing that, no, no, a human failure can be resolved with a human fix without going high tech. Congressman Al? I, I don't understand how a guy who's running what, 70 yards across the, you know, to, to gain illegal entry to the White House is interfering with citizens Right of access, and I, I just, this is this is a clear failure of the people to do their job, and it is in no way a way that, that it is taking 
the citizens' right to know about their government away. Congress, or, uh, Carl Tubin? Congress would be okay. No, good luck with that one, Carl. <laughs> good luck with that one. Uh, the thing I can't understand is... You want to get beat up at the Secret Service, too, huh? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, right. The thing I can't understand is you have these snipers on, snipers on top of the White House. They were looking at all this. They've got um, walkie-talkies. Why didn't they call and have some people come around? intercept this guy. There was obviously a, a human failure here. And, and, and one of the things I do want to point out is that any any law enforcement agency, which Secret Service is a law enforcement agency, they have a use of force continuum. When, when, when this guy climbed the fence, he did not have a visible weapon, according to all reports, he did not have a visible weapon in his hand, which means that even though he jumped the fence and he didn't have a visible weapon, Going all the way up to lethal force is jumping so many steps of the use of force continuum, they'd be violating not only protocol, but standard law enforcement procedures, and they would have possibly unnecessarily taken a human life. No, no, I'm not saying they should have shot. I'm saying that they, they should have gotten on their walkie-talkie and say there's someone running across the, uh, the lawn. Get out there. I mean, you know, something like that. Rebecca Kaufman. When we talk about human failure, I think we should also talk about the failures of the VA to address the mental health of our veterans, because we keep referring to this guy as a guy, but he's a veteran. Um, and he obviously has issues that caused him to do this. That's not to justify or rationalize his actions, which were completely wrong. But it's important to be talking. I, I want to see the media have more of a conversation about the mental health of our veterans and what the VA is not doing to help them, because this has been an issue we've seen time and time, and time again. But this is also, I mean, agreed, absolutely agree with you, Rebecca, but this is also a guy that had 800 rounds of ammunition, other weapons in his car. Uh, this is a man that has been approached by law enforcement officials, not just locally, but in the Commonwealth of Virginia. This guy, along, I mean, granted he's got PTSD, but there's a violent streak in this guy. Uh, you know, I, I will... Well, all that oh, does well. is raise more questions. I mean, that, that just proves to me that this has been flagged along the way and no one's picked up on it. That's, you're pointing to more incompetency, not less. Very true. Well, Very true. Yeah, and, and, and Rebecca, just so you know, we, we've had pretty extensive conversations around this table about the VA, about its shortcomings, including... Uh, on the whole mental health side, because this is a national, highly visible example. There's all sorts of localized stuff, as, as, as you're well aware. Having said that, if a guy gets over the fence and is running towards the house, you have to take action. And it doesn't matter what his personal story is. You don't have time to find out. If you have to shoot him, Shoot him low. Now I know usually it's no. You never shoot low. You always shoot. You sh shoot you center sh mass. You, sh you shoot. You shoot to kill. I, what I do have, and I talked about this the last time when at, at, at the very end of the show that there's talk about setting up a huge perimeter and metal detectors, and I hope we don't do that. I do hope we raise the height of the fence. I don't know why we think that a fence that a 42-year-old guy who looks overweight, but let's assume he's super fit, can hop over and then make a run, and that people are getting over from time to time. We, I don't want to move the fence, which is why we closed Pennsylvania Avenue down, 
truck bombs could could damage like like Oklahoma City, oh, City. could right. damage the the front of the White House. You had we had to we had to close Pennsylvania Avenue, sadly. But we don't need to make it easy. I don't just mean by by having people taking a snooze after the boss left town, but getting over a fence quickly and racing the 60 yards or whatever it is, and then leaving the front door unlocked. Let's raise the fence, electrify it at the top if we have to, but let's not interfere with the distance and public access to being able to feel like they're close to, I don't consider the White House the people's house, I consider it the president's house. And if you want the house to become president, then it's your house for a while. Um, but it is something that... Wait, that wait, hold on, Congressman Al, Congressman Al, your turn. I think Rebecca. we totally misread what Rebecca was talking about. She was not suggesting that they should have called up a psychiatrist and, and had him run out on the front lawn <laughs> and counsel this guy. They were talking about the general approach to dealing with the PS you know, problem. PTSD, which we talked about at length. Exactly. And right. And, and I would point, point out that one of the key people who saw that that issue was brought up was not here today. Another woman. I think women bring really a slightly different approach to these things. And it was and repeating that the same soon, subject as soon as she as soon as she said it immediately. <laughs> Men grabbed the issue and pulled it and talked about what they wanted to talk oh, yeah. about rather than talking about trying to prevent these things from occurring by dealing with them earlier. Call Tuvin. The, the, the thing that, that I heard at the hearing that I didn't like is the fact that the, the Secret Service is understaffed right now by 500 individuals. And I don't know what kind of an impact that has. But it must stretch what they what they have to a degree, and there's also sequestration, which is taking money away from them. And uh, uh, ISIS said, "Well, you've gotten X amount of dollars, but <clears throat> you know, it, maybe they're not. They, they have to hire more people, and they have to be more prepared for these kinds of incidents." Rebecca Coffin. Well, yes. To clarify what I was touching upon earlier, I mean, I think that. The issues with the VA can and should be talked to at nauseum until they are solved. Today is a new day, and you're talking about a separate incident. Um, I think that it's when any, as they would any time an intruder intrudes into the White House. However, what I'm talking about is the preemptive things we can be doing to give veterans, the mental health care they need to present, prevent incidents like this from occurring. Rebecca, are you, are you saying that had this guy gotten proper mental coverage from VA, this incident would not have happened? Honestly, I don't know. I don't think there's been enough media reporting around his story and his personal journey. I would like to see more of that. Um, what I do know is that he is a veteran. He clearly suffers from PTSD, and that's a problem. Fair enough. Fair enough. Carl Tubin. I, I, I work with the Vietnam Veterans of America, and I, we, we have gotten into this stuff. Unfortunately, even with the scandals and all the pressure that's been put on the, on the VA, they are still not doing what they really should do as far as mental health is concerned, which this supports the VSO, the Veterans Service Organization, <clears throat> entirely. Well, we're going to keep an eye on that. We also want to report there's breaking news coming out of Dallas, Texas right now. 
Uh, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention is now reporting the first case of Ebola is now inside the U.S. A patient showed up at a Dallas hospital showing signs of possible Ebola virus after returning from a trip from the Ivory Coast in the western part of Africa. CDC now confirms that a, a confirmed case of Ebola now exists inside uh, America's heartland in a hospital in Dallas. We'll keep an eye on that. When we come back, we're going to talk about 12 governors in trouble, including several key Republicans, several key Democratic governors. Are the Republicans losing their stronghold on the governor's mansion? And can the Democrats maintain any presence that they have inside state government? This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's happy hour. We're going to cut open our cigars, order our martinis. Al, you just look overjoyed by that. (laughs) We'll be back in three minutes. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor, hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelly's Back Room that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland Scotches, they've got Isla Sky Scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
once. Here live in Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Talk a little bit of domestic politics right now. It's midterm election season, but it also means that voters in many states will be going to elect their state leadership and their state representatives, senators, and in many cases, governors. There's a lot of governor seats that are open this year. But there are 12 that our friends at Politico pointed out that are in real interesting, and some are in real trouble. But it it does bring up the question, Bob Hines, we've seen a huge influx of of, uh, Republican governors that have occupied the mansion, some in Democratic states that we didn't even think would be possible, i.e. places like Michigan, places like Wisconsin, uh, we even saw a, Dem- a Republican governor in a place called California for a while. Thank you, Governor Schwarzenegger. Uh, but for a long time, the, the Republicans have managed to keep a stronghold on many of the governor's mansions in this country. Are we starting to see an off a, uh, an offshoot or release of that stranglehold a little bit? They are. I think the Republicans have uh, a substantial majority in the, in the uh, uh, you're bound to lose one or two possibly, but I don't think it's going to be, I don't think there's going to be any big turnover at all. Really? I don't. Interesting. Uh, former state party chairman, Carl Tubin, do you agree with Bob Hines? Um, I think that there are a few Republican governors that could be in trouble. Uh, some of it because of uh, economic cir- circumstances in their state. Kansas, for example, has a governor who uh, evidently <clears throat> is, is on the ropes, along with a possible U.S. senator who's also on the ropes. Uh, uh, the, the race in uh, Wisconsin is very, very close, and uh, that's going to go down to the wire. Uh, uh, what? I don't know what other well, well, let's talk about let's talk about Wisconsin for a little bit. Dan Lipner, you've got uh, you've got uh, uh, a Republican in Scott Walker that beat a recall vote by seven points a few years back. Uh, there's no question he is no friend of Democrats. He is definitely no friend of uh, big labor. Uh, but it seems that there could be a way strong enough that the people of Wisconsin are tired of them. Could Scott Walker lose the governor's mansion in Wisconsin? Well, the issue with Scott Walker is less who he isn't friends with than who he is friends with. Uh, he's also fighting a little bit of a political scandal on his flank that he might very well have been taking, according to Wisconsin law, illegal campaign finance uh, contributions. So as well as the unrest he has brought on himself in the state. So, yeah, Scott Walker could be in trouble. I thought it was kind of amusing the other day when uh, Chris Christie was in Wisconsin in 
showing his support for Scott Walker and asked about Scott Walker's presidential possibilities, which uh, I, I found rather humorous. <laughs> Alan Ward, Scott Walker, somebody that said he could be an underdog for a 2016 nomination if he loses his governorship. Does that pretty much take him out of the running? That makes him an even bigger underdog. <laughs> Bob Hines. It isn't that it isn't that the quote people are tired of Republican governors. They don't want people who are doing things they don't want to be done. You know, getting in trouble like that. The reality is anybody, independent, Democrat or Republican, who gets caught in a situation like that is going to have trouble with his voters or her voters. And well they should. But it seems to me that, that you can't run governors necessarily in the same kind of analysis that you do senators, congressmen, and the president, because <clears throat> because they're they're separate and they're different, and you can have a Republican trend in one and a Democratic trend in the other, uh, and it, it's happened often. So I don't know what trend there is at the state level for either party. And but, I'm glad to be informed if anybody. But I, I, let's talk about Scott Walker for a second. Re Rebecca Kaufman, you're talking about a governor that got elected on a campaign promise that he would create 250,000 new private sector jobs for the state of Wisconsin. Uh, both sides, Republicans and Democrats, both claim, "Hey, this guy's only created 100. He's 150k short." Is that going to be a big ticket item for voters when they go to vote for him or not vote for him in November? I think that voters understand that nationally our economy is in trouble right now, and they're not going to blame Scott Walker for that. I think that the Republican gubernatorial extinction theory that's going on right now is largely sensationalized. Um, and I do think it's a different conversation than our um, Senate and congressional conversations in, in 2014, because Governors impact the day-to-day -day lives of the citizens who live in their state far more than their senators and representatives. Um, it's just a completely different conversation. It's not so linked to the political ties as the, the other races are. Dan Lipner? Well, it's, what Rebecca said is correct. However, it's also the, I, I think we're seeing a bit of, a, at least with the governor's seat, a bit of a sign that the radical center is, is flexing its muscles, saying that anytime you're going out on a limb, either the far right or far left, the, the, the middle gets pissed off. And in this case, so Walker is an example of that. Pat, uh, Sam Brownback in Kansas, who took a pretty radical economic theory into the Kansas governor's office, is is in real trouble and is probably right. hurting uh, Alan's friend, Pat Roberts, along the way, because a sinking ship can actually pull down a few more. Yes, indeed. I mean, is, is, is Scott Walker a sinking ship, Alan Moore? It's hard. It's hard to know. I, I think both Rebecca and Al were absolutely right when they said that the governor's mansions are very different places than uh, than the Congress, uh, either house. Um, people tend to know who their governor is. They may know who their senator is. They tend not to know who their congressman is unless they're they're paying close attention. Um, there is an anti-incumbent mood out there because there's still frustration in the country about the state of the economy. People are still angry and distressed about what has happened to them in the last half a dozen years and what the, the what their current status is and how they perceive the future. All of those things work against incumbents. So 
you know, it's not a surprise that, that a number of these uh, races are, are in play. We don't know what events will occur between now and then. We don't know what bizarre things people will say or do in the states uh, between now and the election. Um, we don't know what national trends might cause a few more people to show up at the polls. Turnout is, is obviously uh, uh, really important here. So there's a, inevitably some surprises, but I don't see some some tidal shift that's obvious, other than incumbents, watch out. And incumbents, to be careful, uh, are uh, over and over again now avoiding debates with challengers or limiting them, which is uh, really interesting. They're all concluding that don't damage yourself uh, further in, in in a debate, unless you know you're really good and you think your opponent's really not. But Congressman now, when, when we talk about electing their state leadership, we're, we're talking about electing their state representatives, their state senators, and in this case, governors. When we talk about the economic impact, a lot of these governors, particularly in strong governor's chairs, uh, such as the one that we see in Wisconsin, the one that we see uh, in uh, in Colorado, where you've got a Democrat that's in trouble, these directly affect the economic policies of that state, and they can either create or disrupt economic development in their state. Are we seeing more and more voters becoming more educated about this? Are we seeing a radicalized, moderate movement that says, "Look, we got to get our arms around this more and more"? Well, I wish we were having a radical. Moderate uh, movement, movement, you know, because the extremes are driving me crazy. But <clears throat> the fact is that governors certainly have something to do with the economy of the state. But it's a it's a different thing than the national economy. It'll in, in Washington State if if Boeing catches a cold, the whole state goes down. So you could have. Plenty all across the country, and Washington State could be in deep doo-doo uh, if Boeing were. It's not, but, but it, it becomes very local, and I think that the people of that state know it, uh, and they're much more likely to have an opinion on who should be governor than they do probably who is their senator or their congressman. Dan Lipner, uh, Democrats have a problem with uh, John Hickenlooper out in the governor's mansion in uh, Colorado, uh, once seen as fairly untouchable, now is who, do you, who would you rather have a beer with mantra is quickly taking a hit. How in danger is uh, the governor in Colorado right now from being unseated? Uh, he's actually in danger, and I'm actually going to link this again to my previous statement about linking the governors and the Senate races, because Hickenlooper is in trouble and a bit of news here as well. Udall is now in trouble, and I, and I predicted that Udall was not going to be in trouble at all. But there's been some it, some significant movement in his numbers, and there's Hickenlooper dragging him down. Is he an anchor, possibly? It is possible, and the question is: is the voters being frustrated, and and who they're taking it out on? And that just it might just be it taking it out on the incumbent. Well, whereas I, I, whereas a, a a moderate movement, and this is linking another governor's seat, which is completely safe. That seemed seemingly was pretty radical, but he moved. Kasich in Ohio was 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 on the front line of people wanting to take him out, and had done some pretty radical things in his first two years, but moderated pretty quick after losing a giant union vote in the state. 
So the moderates have a voice, and when they're listened to, the seats seem to be safe. Congressman Al. I, I was just going to say that the one example of where I think federal and state things can come is, is when the senator or the governor or something is, is in really difficult times. And that does, I think, tend to spread out to, to his party which would, or her party, as the case may be. Carl Tuvin? Turn out, turn out, turn out. <clears throat> and we will not know until after the election whether it's going to be effective or not. Evidently, the Democratic Party has spent a lot of money in registering new voters. And we'll have to wait and see how this all shapes out. And we won't know for two or three days after the election in some of these races. Broad call. Rebecca Kaufman. Absolutely. And Democrats are definitely nervous about this. So that's another reason why I think this is so sensationalized. I mean, Chris Christie is campaigning for Walker, but Michelle Obama is also campaigning for Burke. It's important to remember that Democrats are having an equal reaction to this because, as you were just saying, everything is, I mean, in Colorado, for example, Udall is dragging down Hickenlooper. In general, Americans are displeased with Washington, and we're seeing that manifest in different ways. Dan Lipner, uh, I don't know if I think Americans are just displeased. I don't know if it's with Washington, but just their elected officials as a whole. But also, as far as turnout goes, and this is I have some I have some friends who work with me on various different campaigns in Colorado that the Bannock Street project, which Democrats the first move the Democrats have used to use the Obama turnout machine in an off-year election uh, for the first time seems to be having some problems. And that's a very, very scary premise because if that's true, making the Obama phenomenon potentially a unique one that cannot actually be translated to any other races. That's a very scary premise. Well, they tried that in their race against uh, Mike Honda out in California. It didn't seem to work. Uh, they're trying it at state levels. It doesn't seem to be working. But Alan Moore, you know, we look at an open seat where the Democrats are pouring a lot of money into Jason Carter, the son, the grandson of former President Jimmy Carter, uh, who's who's going up against um, uh, Republican Nathan Deal for the governor's mansion in Atlanta. That one's got some big, significant telltale signs for possibly 2016, as far as where some of the truly southern dog Democrats might go or the moderate vote might go. Is this a telltale sign that we need to look at? Well, I. I don't see the 2016 connection for from the for the governor's race. Nathan Deal was a you know reasonably well-respected congressman, and Carter is the, the state senator who's the grandson of a former president. Of a Carter 2016. Carter 2016. President. So, so Carol, fairly or not. Well, um, let me rephrase the question. Let, let me rephrase the question. Look at the Senate race in Georgia if you want to see something more interesting in terms of 2016, but but I, I'm not seeing the 2016 connection. I, 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 you know, here's a couple of old political names. I'm guessing that it's going to come back to what, what, what Carl talks about. Who, who can get their folks to, to, to come out? Um, Georgia's a, a, a state in, in flux and transition. Uh, I'm not knowledgeable enough about what's going on on the ground to, to, to make any any reasonable prediction uh, about about what will happen. I just know it's in play, 
and at least at least there's no anti-incumbent vote in in that one. And, and some people who are still ticked off about something that Beal did in Congress, or that or that uh, that Curry's grandfather did in the White House long ago. Fair enough. Uh, Idaho, uh, Butch Otter, Republican uh, governor in Idaho, is going up a self-funded Democrat uh, named uh, AJ AJ Baloff. Uh, AJ Balkoff is pretty much not taking a lot of money from federal democratic or a lot of political fundraising. He's pretty much funded this whole thing by his his lonesome. Uh, Bob Hines, if in fact we were to say uh, the Democrat out there, Balakoff, comes out as a self-funder, is this a trend we're going to see more and more of, and is this something that we need to be concerned about? Self-funding? Yes. You've got the money and you want to run, you can do it. I mean, it's as simple as that. I don't know how successful he's going to be. You know, but that's the question. But it's a troubling trend. Congressman Al? Because what you're going to have is a bunch of rich people in, in office. And what do we have now? <laughs> a bunch of I don't want to be rich people. Congressman rich people. Let Congressman Al finish his statement, for crying out loud. Congressman Al. I, I think they just finished it for me. <laughs> okay, then we're good. Then we're good. Uh, Idaho doesn't seem like it should be a big deal or something that the GOP should worry about. But if a Democrat gets into Idaho, which has been which has been largely a red state in many instances, is this a sign that the Democrats are really putting out the vote and getting a good return on their investment? Either that or there's a lot more uh, migrating Californians who've gotten caught in the world. So their vacation <laughs> home is now in California. Their residence is in Idaho. And by the way, and by the way, Idaho's a that is our state. plan, Alan. That is our plan. Don't <laughs> tell anyone. Move everybody to Idaho and get vacation homes in California. Idaho, Utah, Colorado. That we already got Colorado. We want the other two. Right. You're happy. You can have uh, Dan Lip- too, if you want. Okay, I'm making the public declaration right now. Dan Lipner, you're high. Uh, <laughs> Alaska. You've got Governor Sean Parnell facing a really tough race up there in uh, in Anchorage. However, the Democrats believe that they can get in a traditionally red state, all, even though they have one Democratic congressman, Alaska pretty much runs red. Uh, well, they have, they have a Republican senator, <laughs> Mark Bigot. She's desperately trying to, to, to hang on. Are we, are we, are we, we are starting to see a Republican downfall, possibly, in Mark Bigot. We're starting to see uh, a little bit more of a stronger Democratic effort there in Anchorage. Why should we, uh, Carl Tuvin, be concerned about who wins in Alaska? Well, <clears throat> listen, we want the Democrats want baggage to win. It'd be nice if we could turn over a governor's chair in Alaska to a Democrat, uh, and that would that would uh, say a lot, possibly, or say something about 2016. And where the country might go at that point. But Bob Hines, traditionally the governor's mansion in, and they've given us such superstars as Sarah Palin, uh, <laughs> traditionally the governor's mansion in Alaska has been a driving force in everything from oil exploration in the Arctic to broader energy issues. Uh, is this something that both parties would like to see go their way? Of course. Absolutely. It, both parties want to win. Is the is the energy issue big enough to get the uh, Republicans or the Democrats out enough to vote for a governor's race like this? 
energy in Alaska is very, very vital. And so, yes, absolutely. Can we just hold on, hold on, Dan Lipner? Can we just point out the socialist state of Alaska? Every Alaskan <laughs> resident gets a check yeah. from the government in response to the oil sales. It's a dividend. It's a corporate dividend paid out by Alaska Energy Public. Otherwise known as socialism. It's, it's a dividend. It's a dividend. How dare you? How dare you, Dan Lipner? <laughs> and apparently the, Republican, apparently the Republicans in Alaska no, like No, 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 wait, wait. wait. Dan Lipner, Dan Lipner, I want you to answer Rebecca Kaufman's question. Don't you like socialism? We oh, he's quiet. There we go. Ladies and gentlemen, defense rests. Carl Tubin. He's saying that because Alaska is so close to Russia. Oh, a ticket surveillance. Wow, that only took that only took 15 minutes to come out. I've never seen Dan Wow, Alan Moore. Some some of these these heart and soul issues in Alaska, like oil and guns. Believe me, you're not going to see a lot of difference between the Republicans and the Democrats. They're they're going to have they're pretty much one and the same. They're going to find their differences elsewhere. But with 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 all the governor's races going on, obviously Carl Tubin, the Democrats would love to see a nice turnover back to Democratic strongholds in these governor's mansions. What does that say for 2016 on the Democratic side as far as maybe the state parties are getting their acts together? They might be able to turn over some of these governor's mansions. Is that something that's going to give them a huge boost? Sure, it's going to give them a, a, a huge boost in 2016. <clears throat> and if these Democratic governors can get elected in 2018, it'll mean they will control, hopefully, the legislatures, which will draw, redraw the line in for so I saved the best for last. The the completely idiotic and crazy governor's race in Florida, my state, <laughs> one of my states. Uh, you have the former Republican governor, former Republican attorney general, now Democratic gubernatorial candidate in Charlie Crist going up against the almost indicted healthcare guy, one-term possibly wonder in Rick Scott. Florida is a huge state, but it continues to be the butt of many political jokes. Bob Hines, it, it, this is a race of who could possibly suck less. Yes, well, Rick I, Scott or... I think you hit it on the target right there. But my question to you is, and I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask uh, Carl Tuvin this question because it, it boggles my mind. For Republicans, Rick Scott has been... Somewhat popular in some of the decisions, he's turned away federal funding for stuff like high-speed rail, but then he turns around and does other crazy stuff on top of the fact that he's constantly one step away from being indicted from his involvement from Hell South. Do the Republicans vote for somebody who could be a political liability in, in 2016, particularly in a presidential year? Probably, yes. Very good. Carl Tubin. How do, Carl Tubin, how do Democrats in Florida turn out the vote for a guy who's been a Democrat for all of about 10 minutes. It's a Democrat. They want a Democrat, Democrat to be the governor of Florida. And if they want it badly enough, they'll turn out. And they'll even, they'll even take him. Charlie Crist is a complicated political figure. Let's, <laughs> let, let, let's be clear about And this. he's really tan. Char Charlie Crist, who actually wanted to be Senator Crist, 
but Marco Rubio had kind of gotten in the way of that. Which, by the way, he ran problem. as a Republican. Yes. He did yes. run as a Republican and then an, and then an independent. And then an independent. Right. Um, since Rubio, so Rubio wanted a transition. Rubio wanted a plurality, uh, <laughs> but the the real issue being that you can't draw a political map where Republicans win the presidency without Florida. So of course Republicans want Florida. But you've also got a situation, Alan Moore, where they've got a huge medical marijuana, almost legalizing marijuana referendum. The Democrats are hoping, hey, that's even though we've got Charlie Crist. This could be enough to swallow a really ugly pill in Charlie Crist. Is that is that enough to get the liberals out to get them to vote and maybe even take over the mansion? I don't know. The problem is you not only have to get these guys to think about going, but if they're all high, will they find the poll? <laughs> <laughs> will they fill out the ballot correctly? Will they put the right chad? By, by the way, this is a Republican strategy. Get them all high before they vote. <laughs> I can't believe we're having this conversation. Congressman Al, this is going to be rich. Talk to me. <laughs> I'm wondering, we haven't mentioned anything about the senior citizen vote in uh, in Florida, which is usually pretty important. And if it, I'm asking the questions. I don't know anything about Florida politics, but it seems to me that the Republican governor is wrapped up in a lot of things that would make most seniors leery. You know, he's not clean, he's not beautiful. Uh, what truth is there to that? There's, okay, going back and putting on my pundit hat, there's a lot of truth to that. However, you're talking about very centralized bastions of folks. You've got your your Palm Beach, Broward, Dade, Democratic Mafia there, the condo commando crowd, who they'll, you can put a block of cheese in the Democratic chair, they'll vote for him. Uh, at the same time, you've got, you've got the raging redneck Riviera vote, which are your traditional southern god guns and babies Republicans that will put Rick Scott in there because he's all about god guns and babies. So the senior vote's an odd vote down there. We haven't even taken into consideration the I-4 corridor, which is a largely moderate vote, which if you want to look at how an entire nation will vote, get the voting results from Volusia County, Brevard, all the way down through Seminole, Orange, Polk, and into Hillsborough and Pinellas County, that I-4 corridor is going to be an interesting vote. And you're talking about a guy, Charlie Crist, who originally comes from the West Coast, that I-4 corridor. Dan Lipner. Well, and that is one of the, and I'm also a Florida native and have several campaign cycles in Florida. So what, everything Justin said is correct. Florida is basically three states in one. The, the south is the northeast. The, the northern part of the state is the south, and the central part of the state is the Midwest. And that being the case, Florida has always been a state that traditionally produces one political start at a time, and we don't, and Floridians do not like politicians that make a lot of noise. Bob Graham, who was unassailable for, for decades in Florida, when he started making a little bit of noise about various different uh, government issues in Washington, his numbers started to fall. Right. So the fact that we have two candidates, or the only people on the ballot for governor for what Floridians don't like, <laughs> is kind of a shocking proposition. So it's going to be interesting to see how it plays and out. Now, and well, this is the state on which c controls 
national elections? Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, welcome to our political world, Al. Matter of fact, it can do all of it. It is three states in one. We yeah. should just run all presidential yeah. elections out of Florida and be done with it. Yeah. <laughs> Alan, Alan Moore. One of the other things that Al was talking about seniors and how are the seniors going to vote, I wanted to harken back to my earlier comment. As many of the seniors are, are going back to the future, rediscovering pot, some of them <laughs> will also be high and will have trouble finding the poll and, and right. getting But will, right. will, no, 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 will no, Medicare no. cover no. that marijuana? That's the question. The question is on the ballot. They hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Everybody hold on. Carl Tubin, Carl Tubin. Seniors will be able to get to, uh, to the voting place because they'll be on buses, picked up at the nursing home, taken to the polling place, and then they they will have to get in on their own. Yeah, but they're not going to be taken in buses because Charlie Chris doesn't want a bigger carbon footprint. They got to be electric cars. Right. You got a problem now, Carl. That doesn't give me any. And will those hope. drivers be high? Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's the, well, that's Dude. A, <laughs> really. <laughs> Carl Tuvin, please add to this monotony. Now, Rice Treven. Uh, about a year ago or more, was saying how wonderful among Republican governors and how wonderful their states have been and prospering, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I didn't ever think we would be having this conversation about Republican governors falling off well, the it, table. It's not to defend Ryan Spreebus, but, I mean, when you look at economic turnarounds, Ohio's done a really good job yeah. about increasing their uh, their stake. Scott Walker, not so much. When you look at places in Florida, Rick Scott has brought in. Now, having no income tax probably helps, but he's done a lot of economic development work down there, something Charlie Chris couldn't do in his governorship. What do you, what do you, what do you mean? No, 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 no. no. I have no doubt that, that, uh, that the governor is taking credit for economic increases in Florida, but it actually has far more to do with the international situation with money fleeing from Latin America into Florida. So at, Florida's not going through a great economic boom. That, 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 I got, that I, I'll tell you what, I got, a, I got a whole association of realtors in Tallahassee that will disagree with yeah, you. Yeah, my question is who the buyers are. It, oh, wait, yeah. do, wait a minute, wait a minute. Do you and care? It, it, is, it, it is with cash, but it, it, it would attract a dog. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We didn't that say might, we, that might be high after we, found we it. We didn't know that. I mean, okay, so Rick Scott's claiming a real big economic boom. The condo market in South Florida is huge. Now, granted, they might be coming from places like Columbia, uh, Belize, but hey, it's economic money. Those people spend money. Their money's just as good. It may be cocaine tainted, but it's just as good. No, no, the, admittedly, that is how politics works. If, if you happen to be in the seat when something good happens, it's obviously my doing. Yeah, it was. But that, 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 Voila, Rick Scott. That being said, we are a sophisticated bunch, or at least pretend to be around this table. Yeah, because this has been a sophisticated discussion today. So actually, so actually knowing the reasoning behind things, yeah, I don't blame Rick Scott for attempting to use this and say it was it was it was his move to make the, the socialists take over all of Latin America and have all that money flee into his state. Yeah. That, I'm, ending, that I'm, this I'm so ending this segment. This segment has gotten way. This is done. Let's talk about something serious. I got an idea. Let's talk about the Supreme Court when we come back. This is Backroom Politics live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We're not high. We swear. We'll be back in two minutes. Just what? Just what? Just a few drinks in us. Oh, that's true. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us.
You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shelleysbackroom.com slash private-party. Shelley's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also the place for private parties. Back room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the final segment. It's going to be a short segment, but we do have to talk about uh, this. Uh, in the past 48 hours, the, the uh, Supreme Court, in a 5-4 to four vote, basically allowed the state of Ohio to limit early voting. And that has started up a storm of voting rights versus states' rights arguments. Uh, but Bob Hines, you know, a lot of people said, okay, we don't care. In fact, this is actually a pretty big story that didn't get a lot of press when the 5-4 ruling came down. Why is this so important to America? Well, listen, it, I think it's very reasonable that we have more than one day to vote. You know, it's so because it, it's easy. And now here's a Democrat saying, is that nice? Because they want to drive them all to the pub. Yeah, yeah, because him hailing yeah. you but the fact of the matter on is, radio is such yeah. a great visual. But, you know, <laughs> the, the reality is, I didn't want to interrupt. The reality is, what Ohio did was said they, had, they had like 37 days or 35 days. They cut it back to 28 a month. Now, if you can't find a way to get to a poll in a month, I don't know what you're doing, unless maybe you're drinking too much or something else. That's plenty enough time. Rebecca Kaufman. Okay, whenever you think about this decision, this is a decision for the elected officials of Ohio. This is They have the local knowledge of what works for the state. This is not a Supreme Court decision, and they were completely correct on this. Absolutely. Wow. Dan Lippner. And I'm a Cincinnatian. Okay. 
Go Buckeyes. So I, I vote there. Oh, Dan Lipner, you agree with this? Uh, the Supreme Court speaking on this. It became a federal issue. The federal district court that covered that actually had already come on the opposite side, saying the restriction uh, on the number of voting days was going to, to disproportionately affect uh, poor people, but also the protected class of African Americans, which is all correct. Federal law on this, the disparate impact being the case, uh, be, being what the, the appellate court was acting on, the Supreme Court now speaking on this, suggests they potentially very scary outcome in response, saying that, that again, that the, the protecting of voting rights is going to be taken, it's going to be under assault even more so, at least in this case from the Supreme Court. Congressman Al. I, I think we're making a, a mountain out of a molehill. I don't think it's a very important decision. They didn't reduce it very much. <clears throat> I just, I, I, I think to, to be... Judging the Supreme Court on this issue is idiotic. Uh, let's let's talk about the, the the Supreme Court's general trend. To that, I would say that somehow when you have Republican presidents, you get conservative parts. Democratic presidents, you get more liberal ones. But I don't get so upset with this court uh, because I remember. When the Warren court was around, it was all the conservatives that were having fits because they did abortion and they did I mean, Earl Warren, impeach Earl Warren and all of that crap. So whoever is in the Supreme Court is in the Supreme Court and they're going to hit, be depending on where they came from. You're either going to like it or you're not going to like it. If you don't like it, wait till you get a new president and, and try and, and, and slowly change it. But to, to say the Supreme Court isn't doing its work is nonsense. Alan Moore. Yeah, let's remember what's, what actually happened here. The, the states get to decide how big the window is for voting in terms of the calendar, whether you can have mail-in votes. Some couple of states, you can only uh, mail in, uh, you can only vote by mail. The states have a lot of say here. What's been going on in Ohio for some years is you get a Democratic legislature and they extend the time because they would like for you have six months to vote. But they stretch it out to I think 30 some days. The Republican legislature said that's too long. We're cutting back to 28 days, which is still far longer than the great majority of states. Who should get to decide? Which the argument is, let the state decide. Because if you start, if you say every time a state does one thing, and if you change it, and it might have a some kind of political disadvantage, you can only move in one direction. But on this issue, who cares? Well, it's not an important the, issue. The Democrats seem to care a lot, which is why they're making a big issue and wanting to overturn what the legislature decides. And, yes, the, court, and, and the Supreme Court did not hear oral arguments. It just said, yeah, it, the, 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 the time is up, so we're going to let the state decide. And Carl Tubin. I don't think what the <laughs> Democrats are doing is idiotic in this instance. The overall position of the Democrats on, on allowing access to the polls, I think is right. But making a big federal case out of this is ridiculous. Yeah, but the whole Carl. thing is the whole thing is is when you have this early voting, 
the matter how it, it it gives workers who can't necessarily go and vote on election day uh, a chance to to cast their ballot. And we need we we should in this country have try to have the maximum amount of people have the opportunity to cast a vote. Rebecca Kaufman. That's a decision for the people of Ohio and for the elected officials of Ohio. This is a knee-jerk Democratic reaction, one that I should add is politically expedient right now. Bob Hines? I happen to agree with her on that. Wow, Bob Hines. If you can't find an opportunity in 28 days to get to the polls, then you probably going to do something stupid anyway. Uh, you should vote. Okay. <laughs> Dan Lipner. Okay. That's 20 and that's enough time. Okay. Well, the answer is, yeah, this is, this is all politically motivated on both sides. And sure. Ohio has a track record of this. Uh, in, in 2004, there, was, there were lines stretching out the door and mysteriously all in Democratic districts, which kept Ohio in play for another two days after the presidential election. In addition, in, in 2012, Carl Rove issues. is still waiting for Cuyahoga results to come in. <laughs> there, 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 in 2012, there were also issues with early voting. And the, the federal law on this, it, for a protected class, in which case you're talking about African Americans in this case, unfortunately, the impoverished are not a protected class according to, according to law. And so the court acting on that. That being said, why can't we have a consensus in this country overall that people voting should not be a political football? Setting rules, whatever the case might be, to make it as easy as possible for people to vote. In Oregon, they have an all-mail-in ballot. That, it seems to be working just fine. If that turned into a, a nationwide project, that would be fine. Other than the fact I'm certain that it would turn into the same kind of issue with the the mysteries of the the voter fraud, which nobody can seem to really find any examples of anywhere, which oh, is, tends to be the argument in favor. Oh, wait a minute! Oh, I agree. Uh, here we go. Okay, with with that snort, <laughs> with that snort, I'm gonna we'll keep we'll keep an eye on this subject. That was a snort. Yeah, yeah, no, that, was, yeah that was a snort. Uh, with that, I'm gonna start my the first time we're gonna hear Carl all day. Yeah, and uh, wow. That's harsh. It's my favorite part of the show. Tell me a story. You just picked on the only Jew in the group. What? What? Hey, 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 hey. That's not true. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, my God. We're going to hear from the anti-defamation. Oh, God. Anti-defamation. Yeah, that too. Keep this up and we can get the blacks against us as well. What are you doing? Stop. Hey, hey, we need more tablets. Oh I God. have nothing to do with this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with her on this one. Oh, my God. I, yeah, I, I'm going nonpartisan. I'm joining Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. All right, let's start. Tell me a story. Alan, Congressman Al, tell me a story. I never have a story. Good, because you've said enough. You're cut off today. I, I, Bob Hines. Bob Hines, tell me a story. It looks more and more likely, in my mind, that the Republicans win a narrow majority in the Senate. I think it'll be uh, it'll be clear, and I think it will happen. Wow, Carl Tuvin, tell me a story. Secret Service story. <clears throat> um, I was in a. Uh, Does this involve? Is it this decade? Elbows no. in the ribs. <laughs> no, then no, then too late. You're cut off. No, 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 then you're cut off. All right, go ahead. Go ahead. 
I was in a Sergeant Schreiber when he ran for president. <laughs> <laughs> we had we had a uh, Secret Service detail, one of which had been in Dallas, and they were instructed to be very careful and uh, watch on everything. So we're coming out of a of a precinct thing at Loyola College, and Sarge says to me, "Where's Jed Johnson, who's a former congressman?" He's got my speech for the next stop. And all of a sudden, <clears throat> we're stopped at the gate. A cab pulls up. Jed gets out. And tie is loose. Hair is waving. Comes running up toward the uh, cars. And all of a sudden, I feel something is going on. So I said, he's Jed Johnson. He's Jed Johnson. He's one of us. And, of course, this happened. We get to the hotel, and the fellow who was on the Dallas detail comes up to me and says, I'm glad you identified this person because if he had touched the door, he would have been a dead person. Wow. Okay. Uh, interesting. Uh, Alan Moore, tell me a story. Yeah. Quick uh, shout out to the president for in the whole exercise in uh, in, in airstrikes uh, in, in Iraq and Syria, he has not set a deadline for withdrawal. This is new stuff. But I just want to give him that shout out. We didn't get to talk about that. I mean, we didn't, we didn't broadcast? No, but, but what the, the, the story is Zeke Emanuel, who is, who is the, brother, <laughs> the brother of Rom, oh, the brother of Rom Emanuel, who's a doctor, who was involved in the design of Obamacare. This does not make that sound true. He wasn't the architect, but he was, he was uh, Influential. involved. He was, uh, he was at OMB, and he played a role. He uh, he's now uh, up at the University of Pennsylvania, um, and he he's a medical doctor. He <laughs> he found himself in the news this week. I think the key was in order to get an article printed, he had to be very provocative, and he basically said, "We spend too much on healthcare in America on old people." For me, he's 58 years old. He said, "I'm going to be really happy if I live to be 75." That will be enough for me because after that, everything starts going downhill and I start taking too much out of the system, not putting enough back. Well, I want to say on behalf of some of my colleagues around this table that I'm glad that Zeke Emanuel's plan for population control and savings in health is not the law of the land. Wow, that's very true. Hear, hear. Wow. So, so Becca, seventy are very pleased with that. Yeah, great. So, so Becca, this is the part of the show where we usually come up with a scoop, a story that we didn't hear about, something that's important, and I, we're not going to hold you unless you have a tell me a story. Now she's going. No, I want no. I want nothing. I want nothing. Dan Lipner, tell me. Well, in what might be a remarkable nationwide bipartisan move against the national pastime, it looks like a strong possibility. We could have a Beltway series between the Baltimore Orioles and the Washington Nationals. That's your story? That's my story. I'm That's predicting your story? That. I'm predicting it. Go Orioles. I have a thing. Oh, God. Congressman Al, what is it? <laughs> I predict that Roberta, after having watched us for... You mean Rebecca? <laughs> you mean Rebecca? <laughs> Whoever, 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 whoever the lovely young lady across the table. Re- Rebecca Coffin, whoever, the fact I've been yeah. saying her name every five seconds. I, I, 
Congressman Al, you're killing me. You're killing me, Congressman. What I'm predicting is having having watched us today, she will withdraw and we'll never see her around this table again. Is that true, Rebecca? Absolutely not. Yeah. And we have have a prediction with an outcome right in front of us. Yeah. The outcome will be in the future. Yeah, whether whether she lasts. Past a month. Maybe being very polite now and then later. Yeah. Well, you can't believe what I was doing today. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. So, and, 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 and thousands of people listen to this crap. Uh, the NFL, the NFL, and Roger Goodell in a continuing policy of just pissing off everybody. Apparently, the NFL felt that they had not pissed off Muslims enough until last night, uh, Monday night game, uh, Hussein Abdullah. A uh, a uh, offensive man, lineman for the uh, or an offensive receiver for the uh, Kansas City Chief. Actually, he's a defensive. Defense. I'm sorry, defensive back. Close enough. Uh, Abdullah Hussein. Just get those facts right. Abdullah, will you let me finish my story for Christ's sake? Got the team right. I did get the team right. Abdullah Hussein, who is defensive back for the Kansas City Chief, scored a defensive touchdown, went in the end zone, and slid on his knees and began to pray as as a Muslim because we see it as Christians do it. And the NFL fined him. The NFL fined him for excessive celebration, meaning that Roger Goodell has now pissed off women, Muslims, and just about everybody else in America right now. So I'm figuring baseball is America's new pastime. Thank you. Uh, it was the officials in the game who penalized him. The NFL, NFL find him. NFL, no, they did not find him. The NFL offices said it was a mistake. That was not a violation. It should not have been penalized. Just wow. another example of a national cultural trend that just so happens to be occurring in the NFL right now, and we're acting like it's an NFL-specific issue, and it's not. These are cultural issues across our You're country. saying way too many smart things right now. <laughs> That's because I'm behind on my drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she's quick, too. With that, on behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Carl Tewin, Alan Moore, the Dan Lipton, Dan Moore, uh, Dan Litter. <laughs> And and Roberta Kaufman. I am AKA Rebecca. Rebecca Kaufman. I am your moderator, radio's Justin Russell. We will be back next week as Are if, you sure? I don't know. We might be soon now. Assuming the fact that there's no legal injunction against us, we will be back next Tuesday. Live from Shelley's back room, thirteen thirty one F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, DC. Bob place to be if you want to get sued apparently hey uh you can follow us on the web www.backroompolitics.org you can also follow us on on the twitter at backroom politic and you can also email your suggestions your complaints or electronically file lawsuits (laughs) justin at backroompolitics.org we will be back next tuesday have a great week america (laughs) bye-bye